0: Your role as a leader is be able to bring the best in their capacity for whatever you're higher than them, and then help them run as a team and really operate as a team. And that's leadership.
1: Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate podcast. Our quote for today is, the difference between who you are and who you want to be is what you do. Our guest today, Daniel Marcos, is an expert on growth, both personally and in business. He's the co-founder and CEO of Gazelle's Growth Institute and is a leader in online executive education for C-suite level executives. He's also an internationally renowned speaker and maintains a very popular blog that we'll make sure to provide in the show notes. So Daniel, welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Ro. Thank you for the invitation. So one thing I learned chatting right, right before we, we started here is that you are quite a, a global citizen and have lived and worked all over the world. Can you give us a quick overview of uh, all the different places you've been?
0: So I, I, I was born in Monterrey, Mexico, north of Mexico, in a very industrial city. Uh, but I really grew up in Mexico City. My father was invited to work from government there. So I lived most of my time there. But then when I was between high school and college, I was really not ready to go to college. And my father said, hey, why don't you take a year? And I was like, yeah, but what will I do that year? And he said, yeah, I'm working with this English company uh, in the insurance market. Why don't I try to get you an internship there? So I lived in London working at Lloyd's for a year. They have this thing they call the couriers and you run through all the market with the insurance slips. So I did that for a year and then came back to Montreal, precisely my town, my hometown, to go to college. And then after college, my first job, was working for the Mexican government in Hong Kong, precisely when Hong Kong was going to be part of China. The transition year, 2007, uh, it ended a lease of 99 years that was to England, and it passed back to China. And I was responsible for the Mexican delegation for that year. So I lived in Hong Kong for a couple of years, really understanding Asia and how the Mexican government could align with the new Chinese rulers uh, in Hong Kong. And then came back to Mexico, did a startup company, grew it, sold it. Uh, We did really well with that one. And then after that, took a year off, traveled a little bit around the world, and then landed in Boston for my MBA in Babson. And then went back to Austin for 15 years. And I lived in Austin, uh, did a couple of companies there. And recently I moved to Toronto. I've been in Toronto like eight months now. So a little bit around everywhere.
1: You got all covered. Now, you mentioned... I think you started your first company in Mexico back in 1999. Correct. Tell me a little bit about what was that business and what drew you to entrepreneurship in the first place?
0: So when I was a kid, I, I did all these kinds of businesses. Uh, I had a, an auto detail franchise, I did a, an aquarium, I sold t-shirts, uh, everything. <laughs> and yeah. when I was in college, I was uh, looking to do another business and my father was worried that I was going to get too distracted and fail college. So he asked my brother to help me get a job. You know, if whenever your father tells you something when you're a teenager, everything is wrong.
1: Yeah, to the opposite.
0: <laughs> my father said, if I recommend him get a job, he will never get the job. So he got my older brother to guide me on that. So my older brother helped me get a job in a brokerage house, and I became a trader uh, in the Mexican and the stock market. And we did a lot of trading of uh, stocks in the U.S. And I did that for my last two and a half years in college. So when I finished, went to Hong Kong for two years. And I was reading all these magazines, 1998, 1999, about all these kids in the US making billions with their internet companies. So I resigned to my job and came back to Mexico. And the one thing that I knew how to do was stop trading, because that's a two and a half year work that I did before college or during college, sorry. So I said, I'm going to do the first financial website that focuses on the Mexican financial market. And we did kind of an E-Trade and Yahoo Finance thing with games and and blogs and articles and everything online on how to trade stocks. And we built the first one in Mexico. We sold it uh, pretty fast to an Argentinian company. And, And this is a great story. So an Argentinian entrepreneur, very similar to me, he already had Argentina, Chile, and Venezuela. And he went to JP Morgan, New York, and asked for all this money to be the dominant player in Latin America, in in the financial markets. And JP Morgan said, hey, we like what you're doing. We like the management team that you have put on. But if you're in Latin America and you don't have Mexico and Brazil, you're no one. If you really want to be a regional player, you have to have a dominance in Mexico and Brazil. So JP Morgan said, we would like to give you $50 million to invest, $50 million in your business. But you have to have Mexico and Brazil and be a dominant there. So he called me from New York and said, hey, I'm flying to Argentina now. You and I have seen each other on the news. I'm the biggest website in Argentina, Chile, and Venezuela. You're the biggest one in Mexico. I called you. and the biggest guy in Brazil. Uh, I'm inviting you to come to Argentina, and let's put together this regional player, and let's go back to JP Morgan to get the money. So I flew to Argentina, sold my company that night. It was a pretty (laughs) fast uh, uh, deal, and we joined this organization. We were probably 100 or so employees altogether, the three companies. And we went back uh, to J.P. Morgan a couple of weeks later, presented the full strategy for Latin America. Uh, We raised $53 million from J.P. Morgan, Goldman, Microsoft, Intel. It was the best round you could ever dream. And we grew that to 1,200 employees, operations in nine countries, and then sold it to Santander,
1: uh, the 13th biggest bank in the world at that day. Wow, that is a great story. I was pretty excited. And you mentioned your MBA. Now, now, you decided to pursue the MBA after launching a business, in part, I read, because you wanted to help relate to your team. It, it's a little out of order. <laughs> so yes, to- a little out of I- order.
0: When I was in, in Finanzas Web and then Patagon, we were the darling internet company in Latin America. We were in all the newspapers and magazines and speaking all the places. And I had all these kids graduating from Harvard and Stanford and Kellogg asking me for a job. So I begin giving jobs to all these MBA grads, and they were talking this language and, and, and using these words that I felt very uncomfortable. I had no idea what we're saying. I felt that they knew more than I knew. And I begin reading all these books. That's when I met Vern Harnish and EO and all that. But I was really feeling uncomfortable that my employees knew more than me, at least in these kind of subjects. So I said, whenever I sell or whatever I would do with uh, Patagon at that time, I'm gonna go back and do an MBA, so I could really understand all this jargon and, and feel that I understood it. And here's one more thing: uh, being an entrepreneur from Mexico, I wanted to do world business, and I kind of felt that was growing up in a kind of third world country and and seeing the U.S. so big and Europe that I wanted to be able to have the same knowledge or at least the same level of understanding of the business world uh, if I wanted to do do business in the world. So I applied to Babson uh, at that moment and still the number one business school for entrepreneurs and did my MBA there and and graduated with honors, by the way. I loved it. I barely passed college because I hated college, Yeah, but then I really loved going through my MBA and learned a lot.
1: You are a lifelong student, as we'll, we'll get into. So I think it was your next experience was the little opposite. Your first American company collapsed in the 2008 financial crisis. That's correct. Tell us a little bit about that and how it affected you. And did you consider giving up on, on being an entrepreneur after that? Or it was pretty hardwired?
0: You can't imagine how much uh, or how many times. Um, <laughs> after being a what I thought a very successful entrepreneur, right? Uh, we, we really got very lucky. Uh, at that moment, if you had a dot-com last name in your business, people just yeah. throw you money And we really never understood how to do a business. So after that, took a year off, uh, traveled the world, went to my MBA. And then I said, I want to test myself or prove myself in the US, in a world business. And uh, I chose Austin. In that moment, Austin was a very small town, but uh, it was start to be entrepreneurial. And we moved to Austin and opened a mortgage bank serving the undocumented Hispanic uh, market. So when you go to your MBA, They teach you how to read trends and and all those things. So there were two big trends in the US at that moment. One was Hispanics. There was a big realization of of the importance of the Hispanic market and how much the consumption they could have and all that. And the second thing was housing. There was a really, really big push of housing to get uh, the housing ownership in the US like four or five points uh, higher. So they were really throwing you money to buy a house. And the Hispanic market, I said, I'm from Mexico, I understand that. So I'm going to build a mortgage company or a mortgage bank to give loans to undocumented Hispanics. Uh, I knew how to do financial services online, so I thought I knew how to do financial services to the Hispanic market in the US. And boy, was I was wrong. It's completely different. We, through a friend in San Diego, got a line of credit with uh, Goldman Sachs for $500 million to give loans to undocumented Hispanics. We begin giving a lot of loans. I was having a lot of challenges in my business. Uh, It really took me some time to understand the business. And by the time I was really understanding and getting it, that's when the financial crisis came, and I was very weak. I was first the subprime of the subprime. There was no one more subprime than me. So I was completely destroyed there. But also, my company was very weak. And here, I I had a lot of learnings going from an internet company to a mortgage company. Uh, And it was night and day. I hated my job, I hated my day, and I really didn't do what I need to do to really build a company. So if you ask me, my biggest learning on, on building companies was that. Uh, the company was called Unica, and then Creators 1 to 3, and that was a really, really good school on how to build a business, uh, and how not to build a business.
1: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. So more expensive but equally valuable is your MBA? Ooh, uh,
0: <laughs> probably 25 times more expensive than my MBA. I lost all all the money that I built on the, on the first one. And then I finished being a million dollars in debt when I end up closing it. So it was very painful. And and it took me a year to kind of accept myself. And entrepreneurs, we tend to rank how successful our company is to how successful we are personally.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: If your company goes under, you feel yourself like a failure. I took it really, really hard on me that my company went under. And uh, it was not easy. I I went through a really rough, rough time in my life.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I say a lot is I think entrepreneurism is sexy in the rearview mirror. I, a lot of times people just see the end result of, you know, 10 or 15 years of ups and downs and failures. And they, they see the highs, but they don't see the lows. And, you know, the more entrepreneurs you talk to, I mean, those, those lows are real. And often they, they exceed the highs. It's just how the story ends, not how the, the story went. But it's all tied to a story. And right at that time, I think you got connected to Vern Harnish, right? And he, he said some things to you that, that put you on a different path.
0: Thank you for that. Um, after I closed my business, I was—I didn't went to bankruptcy, but I got a significant loan from a couple of family members to be able to pay everything. And I was really feeling bad. I was overweight, overstressed, and all that. And I got several calls from people. And that's thats when you realize uh, who are your friends and, and who's there for you. Yeah. And I got several calls uh, from people. And one of them was Vern. Vern heard through a friend that I had gone under, uh, and I was having a really hard time. So Vern called me. I met Vern 10 years before in Birding of Giants or Gathering of Titans, this program in MIT. And then I went to some of his seminars and things like that. But we're not really friends. It was just more a business relationship, and he coached me in some
1: things. And Daniel, can you just share who Vern is for everyone who may not know?
0: So Vern, uh, he's the founder of EO, entrepreneur's organization, the most influential entrepreneur network in the world. He wrote the book, Mastering the Rock the Habits. And then the, group, the book Scaling Up. He's a really big player in the entrepreneurial community in the world uh, and the scale-up community. And Vernie, like he's a big guy. He founded uh, EO. He was a columnist of Fortune magazine. Like a really, really influential guy. And when I was in my worst moment, he took the time to call me and see how how I was. And that really, first it was very surprising, and then it was very humbling to see that he took the time to talk to an entrepreneur that. He was in his worst moment and really be able to to talk with him and, and help him like understand that it was not me uh, and separate my business from me. Uh, and that was really, really big for me. So where did you guys go from there? So on the call, he said, hey, how are you? And I began <laughs> complaining and I even cried on the call. And and I, you have to imagine, I was it was a really, really bad situation. And, and It wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. So I probably complained and, and made a mess for a half hour and cried and all that. And after the half hour, Vern said, OK, great. What's next? And I was like, what do you mean? And the guy said, yeah, what are you going to do next? And I was like, Vern, you haven't heard that I, I don't believe myself. I, I have a million dollars in debt. And you want me to do another company? And the guy said, yeah, why not? And I was like, Vern, you're crazy. Like, I, I, I don't trust myself. And the guy said, here's what I recommend. And I said, what? And he said, you have to become a, a CEO coach. You have to coach your entrepreneurs. And I said, you're crazy. I don't even trust myself to be an entrepreneur again. And he said, that's precisely why. You went through such a hard time and process that you have to make sure it doesn't happen again to any other entrepreneur. You went through some process that you have some signs and some things that went through your life that you could be very, very valuable for entrepreneurs precisely for them not to go through the same process. And I said, hey, Vern, I really appreciate your confidence in me and all that, but I really need to go back to Mexico, get a job. Uh, back then, I don't know if you remember, the US 2008 was going through a really, yeah. really rough path. So for me as a Mexican, getting a job or an income in the US was really hard. So I said, I'm going to go back to Mexico, get a job, pay the school for my, my daughter. I had a very young uh, couple of years daughter and I needed to pay for school. So I went uh, back to Mexico and he's, okay, great. Go back to Mexico, get your job, but begin coaching on the weekends. And I was very I just can't do that. I said, hey, how are you going to pay your million dollars? And I was like, yeah, with a job, I will never pay that. So he convinced me to begin coaching. And in six months uh, of coaching over the weekend, I was making more money on the two days of the weekend than the whole week. <laughs> so I resigned to my job and became a CEO coach back then. And the and life is history after that.
1: So now you're the CEO of Gazelle's Growth Institute. So can you explain both? what that is, and then also how how that came about in the evolution of working with Vern and his organization.
0: So I became a sales coach uh,
1: back then. And by the way, I couldn't even pay for the
0: fees to pay Vern and all that. So even Vern sent me a plane ticket to fly to get trained uh-huh. uh, with him. And I, I began training and, and helping him open Latin America and all that. And I, after four years, by the way, I paid 100% of my, my loan, the, the million dollars, and I was having a decent uh, life back then. But uh, the last year that I was a full time coach, I slept away from home 250 nights mm. out of the year. It, w- it was a crazy travel time. And uh, I came to Vern and said, Hey, Vern, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm resigning. And I said, What do you mean? Like, you're one of the most successful coaches that we have on the network. And I was like, That year, I made more money than the coach in New York and the coach in Dubai. Uh, but I was in Latin America in a different plane every day. And Vern said, why? And I said, first, because if I continue, I'm not going to have a wife. Uh, and I just had my second son, and I need to be a father. So I need to be home more. And second, I love what we do in scaling up, and we help our clients with a lot of things. But there's a lot of things that we don't control, and that will have a significant impact on scaling, like top grading, like negotiations, and other methodologies that we were not experts. And I was flying all over Latin America and the U.S., with books on my bag, giving it to my clients, and said, hey, after you implement Scaling Up, you have to do top grading, or you have to do high-tech negotiation, or you have to implement EXO with Salim.
1: So you're a traveling book salesman.
0: Yeah, but I was giving all these books away to my clients, and no one was reading them. And I was telling them, like, guys, it's very important that if you do Scaling Up, you also do all these things. That's what's going to complement all the building blocks that you need to scale your business. And they didn't have time. They didn't have the money. so I. Vern and I had that discussion that night and said, How, what can we do to be able to bring all these methodologies to mid-market companies in a way that makes sense in price and format? And that's why we believe uh, we build the Growth Institute. We believe scaling up uh, the methodology that Vern invented and discovered, it's really one methodology, that it's a great way to take control of your business and put systems and procedures and all that. But if you don't have a great team, it's really, really hard to scale your business. So we invited, in this case, Brad Smart from Top Grading, and that was the first class we had outside of scaling up. And we said, hey, you need to be able to hire a great team and maintain a great team. And then we went to Jack Daly and said, hey, you have to teach our students how to be better sales managers and build a great sales organization. So we got Jack Daly for that. And then we got Salim Ismail. We met him at Singularity and how to transform your organization to an exponential organization. And like that, we begin uh, inviting other thought leaders. Today, we have around 110 thought leaders. And we we, we believe we teach you what you need to l- know to scale a business. And here, let me go back to my MBA. When I left my MBA, I was super excited and hey, I have got my MBA and Babson and all that. And when I went back to run my business, I realized I've learned very little tools to really scale my business. For me, the MBA is amazing to help you have critical thinking or develop critical thinking and kind of understanding the economy in the world and all that, but they give you very few tools to really scale your business. Uh, And I love this quote from Salim that says, no MBA teaches you how to do an Uber. (laughs) All the MBA are teaching you how to do General Electric or Coca-Cola or uh, all these Legacy businesses that today they are very strong, but they really don't teach you how to build a business for the future.
1: Or how to make payroll. That's one I've heard.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How to get a loan, how to pay payroll, how to read your financial statement. It's crazy how little you learn how to read your financial statement online uh, in an MBA. So we said, let's build a program that any leader or C-level executive of a mid-market company will have to go through to really be an expert on scaling companies. And that's what we build at uh, the Growth Institute. And one of the programs that we have called the MBD, the Master of Business Dynamics. We teach you how to manage the dynamics of growth. We know that with fast growth, you get a lot of drama in your life, on your operation, on your employees, and and you need all these other tools to be able to complement that.
1: So you've spent years personally in in, in your executive education programs trying to help business leaders scale their business. And one of the things you've said is, people need to stop being entrepreneurs and start being leaders. What's the difference between the two, and why is that so important?
0: So this is one thing that I've been developing,
1: uh, that I'm writing my book
0: on that, that it's not published yet, but how to really evolve from entrepreneur to CEO. We wear this hat that we're entrepreneurs, and we're very proud of being entrepreneurs. We have to change the way we lead our teams. And I've, I've developed or discovered these four stages. Startup, grow up, scale up, and then dominate your industry. And you really have to scale your company on stage three, uh, what I call stage three, the scale up. You really have to first be an entrepreneur and really understand your product and your your market and the market dynamics and things like that. Then on stage two, you really have to start developing your systems and procedures to really be able to, to take your company to the next level. And in stage two, instead of being an entrepreneur and be doing everything, you have to learn how to be a leader. But on stage two, you're a leader one-to-one. Every employee reports to you on a direct basis. And being a leader one-to-one, it's pretty simple because you could sit down with a person and they could see your feelings and you could have dinner with them. And, and you kind of could take a lot of time and a little bit of what you and I talk uh, before the, the interview. Uh, like for me to give a course of two days is very easy to prepare. For me to give a tech talk on 10 minutes is really hard yeah. <laughs> Well, the same thing happens when you're a leader on stage two. It's like you have two days to be a leader per person. When you're on stage three and four, it's like you're you have to be a leader like in a TED talk. You have two minutes to be a leader, and that's it. So it complicates your your leadership significantly. So the best description that I heard from stage two to stage three
1: is on stage two you play checkers, and on stage three you're playing chess. How do you know you're at those stages? Are are they revenue? Are they number of employees? Like where? where? Number of employees. Okay, number of employees, yeah. You got it right. So people said, hey, it should
0: be revenue. And I was, no. And they said, okay, it should be the amount of years it takes you. No, some companies take five years. Some companies take six months. Yeah. What complicates your operation is the amount of employees that you have in your business. So I believe stage one is one to five employees. Uh, Stage two, it's six to 15 and you could get up to 15 people reporting mostly directly to you. After 16, 20 employees, now you have to build the first layer of management. And that's what I call stage three. And that's where you have to play chess. And let me get explain this a little bit more. So when you play checkers, you see your board, and every chip is exactly the same color and exactly the same size. And you have full control of what happens with the chips. And you move them around and, and do whatever you have to do on the game to win. When you're playing chess, you look at your board, and every player has strengths and weaknesses. Every player is different. And now you have to say, okay, if I have a queen, I have a king, and I have a tower, like, what's the best I could do to put them in a position to use their strengths the best? And then with the rest of the players, or the rest of the chips, cover their weaknesses. And that's exactly what you have to do in stage three. You have to really understand your team, understand their strengths and weaknesses, and be able to help them use their strength the most and cover the weaknesses the most.
1: When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the, we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.
1: In that example where the company goes from one to two to three in 12 to 24 months, I've always said, you know, every time a company... Doubles you break half the systems, half the people, and people need to get that much better just to keep their job. I mean, is that what kind of person or leader does it take to be able to run a you know ten person company and then a hundred person company a year or two later? I, I assume it's actually a small percent of people that can make that adjustment, or do you think it's it's higher if they have the right training?
0: So several things, and I'll go back to one statistic I saw the other day in Silicon Valley. From all the venture funded companies. Like eighty or ninety percent, they get sold or close before they do two or three million in revenue. Wow, it's really really hard for a human being to be able to take a company above that level, and the, the amount they're sold maximum, it's thirty million dollars. Most of the venture VC backed companies, they get sold or close below a uh, valuation, let's say, of thirty million, because the human being doesn't have the capacity to be able to lead a team bigger than that, and for me. The most important thing of between stage two and stage three, it's you have to be humble. You have to accept that the company is not about you. It's about them. The biggest shift you have to do as a leader from stage two to stage three is to understand that now you work for your employees. Until stage two, they work for you. On stage three, now you work for them. You work to make them successful. You work to make their life easy. You work to give them the tools they need to be successful. The more that you help your team be successful, the more they will make your company successful. So, in stage three and four, it's not about you, it's about them. Indeed, what I do with my clients that I coach them is I, I turn the organization upside down and I put the CEO on the bottom or the organization. And the job of the CEO is to help the first line of leaders for them to become great leaders and lead each of the divisions of the company to help the next level and next level. And then the level on the top. Your frontline employees are really the employees touching your clients and really doing the business. So the more that you understand that now you work for them to make them successful, the more your company is going to
1: be successful. Yeah. One of the things that I've been writing about a lot and saying, you know, the command and control leadership is dead and not not even the military uses it anymore <laughs> because it doesn't work. And, and with, with generational changes in the speed of business, but there's still a lot of companies out there just running an authority-based leadership system. And, I, and I, I don't think there are going to be that many left in, in five to 10 years.
0: They won't. Yeah, I completely agree with you.
1: And you know, another thing you said that I'm curious because, again, it's counterintuitive, but what is the limitation that companies face when they're only focused on getting team players rather than trying to attract the best talent and create a team?
0: Thank you very much for that question. I think that's really important. So this comes from a learning that Jim Collins found on on the Good to Great book and all his learnings. He said, you first have to decide who to bring to organization, and then where do you have to go? And the best movie that I've seen to talk about this, uh, I don't know if you remember a movie of the US hockey team. Uh, It's a Disney movie.
1: Yes. The the famous Olympic story. Miracle on Ice.
0: Miracle on Ice. Thank you. Yeah. Your role as a leader is to bring the best goalie to bring the best players and then help them play as a team. And that's what leadership comes. And I love the movie because at one moment they uh, have one of the team members that they love, but that team member is not pulling their weight. And he said, I'm going to bring someone to replace it. And everyone said, no, no, we want our friend. I said, yeah, but if your friend is not pulling their weight, we're going to have to remove him. So, or you help him. Pull their own weight, or I'm going to remove him. And they bring this other kid. That they tell the kid, "Hey, you're not going to be on the team, but we're going to tell everyone we're going to put you on the team," for them to defend their team members. And it's crazy when you bring a outside villain, let's say, to the group. The group, if they're a great group, they begin defending each other and helping each other be better. Uh, and that all happens in that movie. I think it's a great leadership movie. And your role as a leader is be able to bring the best. In their capacity for whatever you're higher than them, and then help them run as a team and really operate as a team.
1: and that's leadership.: Very well said. Well, on a lighter note, tell us a little bit about your blog, which has seemed to become pretty popular.:
0: so and here's something we learned uh, in these six years uh, in marketing, and, and this is something uh, Evan Pegg, and I don't know if you've met Evan uh, talk about what he calls "Move the free line. before the internet you gave very little free and then you want to charge the other yeah. 90% of your business or whatever. Now the internet really changed that. And the internet, people are expecting to get a lot for free. Yeah. And if you don't give them a lot for free, you will not create that trust uh, with people. So we learned from a company in Poland, uh, from all places, we did first like a catalog of classes. And you came to Growth Institute and we were just giving class away or selling classes. And we could not win the trust of the people and really understand what we teach. And we said, Hey, no, we need to give a lot for free. We need to give a lot of great training uh, for people for free. And whoever wants to go to the next level, then they're going to come to our classes. And it's crazy how our revenue doubled a year. The year we start a great blog and really put everything on the blog. You can't imagine how much money we spend and dedication and time <laughs> to build a great blog for people to really get a lot of value. And they get a lot of value and, and we get. A lot of emails and, and communications said, hey, thank you very much. I came to, to your uh, blog, got this video and this article. I got everything I need. And we said, hey, come to the class. And some said, hey, I got enough. And some people said, like, if you gave me all of this for free, I imagined the course. And then they come to the course and they're blown away. So we really put a lot of time and attention in building a great free resources where we're creating a community of C-level executives all over the world coming to learn together, and we're building a community around that. And now they're helping each other on how to scale companies. And they begin to have a common language and a common methodologies that they're using. And it's crazy what is happening when you give all this content, how a community begins building around that.
1: Yeah. I mean, because I'm in the affiliate world, I have a lot of people reach out to me and they're like, I want to make money with a website. What type of site should I start? And how do I monetize it? And I'm, and I'm like, you've got it all backwards. You know, you, the people I know making a lot of money have found a way to create a tremendous value for people, create a community, give first, get the trust of the people, and then they focus on monetization. And, and it's hard to do that if you're not passionate about it. And, and so what's the blog before we forget the URL? So, the blog is we have it in Growth Institute.
0: If you go to and then go to the blog, whenever I'm seeing my stats in my Google Analytics and all that, probably over half of our traffic or more of our traffic is people on the blog. And they just come and learn. And we have people coming, learning and learning and learning. And sometimes they take six months, sometimes they take a year, sometimes they take even longer. And then they come to our programs uh, after that. So, if you go to growthistu.com, uh, go to the blog, and you'll see the dedication and the, and the level of learning that we have in our articles uh, and our blog posts. And it's really amazing what's happening. And here, let me let me just add one more thing. We never understood the importance of the community online. So we teach this class that we call a master program. It lasts three months. And on the three months, we give you, as an example, on scaling up with Vern. We have like nine hours of video with Vern. And then you get eight group coaching calls. Uh, all the students together, 50, 75 students. And then you have your one-on-one coaching calls and some exercise and all these kind of things. And the students begin saying, hey, but I need to talk to other entrepreneurs, really implementing the way I'm implementing and my level of knowledge to really be able to debunk kind of the issues of implementing all these methodologies. So now that we build a great community around that, that started with a blog and then they came students, they said, hey, The content is amazing. The coaching calls are great to kind of give us guidance and all that. But where we get the most juice is with other executives all over the world, learning in the same methodology with our companies. Like I have a company that, as an example, we had a student in Iran doing steel, and then we had a company in India doing uh, marketing and a company in China doing whatever, and they all come together and help each other with all the complications of how to implement all these methodologies and how to do it on their own. And it's crazy how much they love the interaction within them more than they like coming to the course. So they come to the course and said, that gave us the common language or knowledge. But where we really get the juice is helping each other implement in our business.
1: Yeah, that, that is a big playbook. I think a lot of mastermind groups are taking that. It's really about the exponential power of just putting the people together.
0: That's correct. And we, we discounted the importance of that. Even Vern being founded EO, we didn't thought it was part of the model. Now we know it's an integral part of
1: who we are. Well, I hope people can learn, learn from that mistake. And on that note, I'd like to ask for the last question. You may have already touched on this, or maybe you have a new one, but what's a, what's a personal or professional mistake that you learn the most from?
0: <sighs> um, I'll give you two quick ones. And they all will both be related to, to Unica, my company, my mortgage company. So first, instead of doing what I loved, that's what I'm doing now and what I did on my first company, I did what the trends and the market told me to do. All the people that I talk in the US and all that, they said, hey, you understand the Hispanics, you talk their language, you have to work in the market. Uh, And the second was real estate. And here's what I learned in real estate. like Every rich or wealthy individual that I know made their money or multiplied their money in real estate. But working in real estate is very different. And here's my second. And that was the hardest part for me in real estate. Usually in the mortgage industry uh, and the realtor industry, works people that they could not get a job anywhere else in the world, and they go to that industry. So I I came from working with the highest, uh, more uh, learners, dynamic people in, in, in the internet time in the 2000s. And then I went to work in real estate. And I I coached today a lot of CEOs, several of them on real estate. And their standards of the average employee on the industry are very, very low. So I went to work with the people with the highest standards in the industry or on the market to go with the people with some of them with the lowest standards. I hated my job because I was in a group of people that did not feed me mentally. I could not have this kind of conversation like the one we're having now. Uh, in a day-to-day. And I was all the trying, fighting to raise their standards. And it was really, really, really tiring. I remember when I went to my investors and said, hey, guys, this time to close, I will show them all the data and all everything. And one of them said, okay, Danny, what would you do? And I said, I think we should close. And he said, because of the data. And I was like, yeah, the data, it's a big one. But second, I hate my job. And the guy said, like, but you're an entrepreneur. You invite us to invest here. And I was like, yeah, but I didn't understand the importance of the community that that you live when you do your company and the standards of your community. And I really had a really, really hard time being on the stand the industry. I, I work today with two real estate investors, really big real estate investors. And we, we share the same things. Like sometimes with realtors or people do insurance for housing and all that, they're so used to have a job that you have to go through them because it's a standard or it's a requirement, all that. And their standards of development are really low. And it's really hard to work in that industry when you have, in, an, in the industry that you are, the people with really, really high standards, learning a lot, reading books every week. Like, I have one client today that he's, he pushed himself to read a book a week. So every week we have a call talking about every book he read. Like, when I was talking with some realtors and said, hey, what was the last book you read? Well, it was two or three years ago or five years ago, or I've never read a book since I left college it was really hard. So really understand who's your tribe and stay around your tribe. That will feed you dramatically, your mindset, your state of mind, your your well-being. And that's a really big one that I learned in the hard way. And, and not everyone, of course, in the industry has low standards, but the average uh, standards in the real estate industry in the US are really low. And it was hard. It was really, really hard for me to be there.
1: Well, that, those are some wise words and lessons there. And the real estate industry in the U.S. has is, is certainly been a boom and bust industry for the last few decades. Daniel, where, where can people find you?
0: In our uh, website, growthinstitute.com, or they could send me an email, Daniel uh, at daniel.growthinstitute.com. Happy to help. I'm a coach at heart for the last uh, 10 years, uh, so happy to help you understand how to scale your business or what's the right thing you have to do or the next step to take your business
1: to the next level. All right. Well, Danny, thank you for taking the time to join us today. You're an inspiring story of perseverance in the face of struggle, owning your own path, and sharing your knowledge with others on a massive scale through Growth Institute. Robert, thank you. Really appreciate the the invitation. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast. We'll include links to Daniel Gazelle's Growth Institute and his personal blog on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd really appreciate if you could head over to the Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast service and leave us a review. You can also learn how to review us by following us on the link on the podcast page. And until next time, keep elevating.